Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. I know it's hard to believe, but we're almost halfway through the book of Ephesians. Ephesians uh, chapter 3. In chapter 1 and 2, we saw God's work through Christ in our new birth, creating a new man and creating a new people, joining Jews and Gentiles together in Christ, reconciling us to God. And now in chapter 3, verse 1, in light of that, Paul says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, Assuming that you heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive of my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it's now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring the light to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who, are, who created all things, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm, what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Father, help us unpack this. Father, give us childlike faith that can use our imaginations and imagine what the infathomable riches of Christ might be like, the immeasurable riches. Lord God, I pray you will help us this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Paul has challenged us to think hard, not just in ways that... Uh, have us try to understand just difficult uh, things because they don't make sense, but to understand things which are spiritual. 
He's trying to help us understand that Christians have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Things we're not familiar with. Things that challenge us. And so I want to begin by having you imagine that you live in a small village in the country. I want you to imagine that in this small village, in this community that you live in, that you are suffering greatly because of famine that has come upon the village. In fact, you've began to see children die because they don't have enough food. You know some of the elderly that are weak, that haven't had the strength to go on. You've watched them pass away, and you've been praying. You've been praying, Lord, we don't know how. Let there be resources. Let there be food. Let there be medical care for our village. And then one night, as you're sleeping, light shines in your face from outside your window. Almost like a blinding light shines in to your bedroom, and you're terrified. And you wake up and you hear a voice say, Let me in. Tap, tap, tap on the window. Light shining in. Let me in. And you come to the door. And outside your door is someone that has piles and piles of food. And boxes and boxes of medicine. And they tell you, this is given to you for them. You're a steward of it. And then leaves. And here's what you've already seen in the village. You've already seen murder rise as people are starving to death. Theft is becoming increasingly more common as people are desperately seeking to survive. Is this a blessing or a curse? Surely you'll be killed. Surely you'll be robbed. You have what everyone needs and what everyone wants, and now it's been given to you. The very thing you've been praying for is handed to you. And you feel inner turmoil. I almost wish they wouldn't have shown up. I've been given this for them, and yet it surely will probably cost me my life as the greedy will want to kill me for it. That is a way to help us grasp just a little bit. We're just talking about physical life. We weren't talking about spiritual life. 
And yet as Christians, we've been handed something far greater than food for starving people. There are people who are spiritually dead. They've never been fed spiritual food that nourishes their body. They've, they haven't been able to eat it. They haven't been alive. And what we see is Paul, knowing he's preaching an incredible message. Chapters 1 and 2 is mind-blowing. But the gospel comes in such an odd way. It's the best news anyone ever could imagine. And yet at the beginning, it comes with incredible suffering. Great promises in Christ, but Christ says, take up your cross and follow me. Deny yourself and follow me. So you have truths that take us to another world on one hand, but then you have immediate suffering, and he's been preaching these truths, and yet Paul's in prison. And that's a difficulty in the minds of believers that are still in their flesh. And so we have the text that is before us. In the previous text, Paul has been teaching how Jews and Gentiles, arch enemies in this world, can be reconciled together in Christ. Made a part of the same family. Not only friends, they become family members, citizens of the kingdom of God in Christ Jesus. And it's not just that the Gentiles are allowed to be with the Jews, it's that the two of them are created into a new people, a, a new society a new kingdom. That's what he's just been teaching and that that people group have been reconciled to God through the blood of Christ, forgiven of their sins. And, and so he begins in Ephesians 3.1 by saying, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. Uh, he begins by saying, in, in, in light of the gospel, I'm actually in prison. That's, a, a, that's an odd thing. Sometimes Paul has these long parenthetical statements that, that go on forever. And so he begins by saying, I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. For your sake, on your behalf. And I want you to just look, skip ahead to verse 13. Let's, let's take all the middle work that Paul has in there. And in verse 13, he says, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. He says, so I'm a prisoner 
of Christ on your behalf, but I don't want you to lose heart. As you look at my suffering and realize you're going to probably suffer, I don't want you to lose heart. Now, there's a whole lot we're going to unpack between that and what he's going to show us in there makes sense of, so don't lose heart. It's, it's that wonderful. It's that incredible. So what does he mean that he's a prisoner of Christ Jesus? Because he's a prisoner of Rome. How is he a prisoner of Christ Jesus? Well, after, Christ, or after Paul was converted... He, know, he, know, he regards no one according to the flesh anymore. He regards everyone according to the Spirit. And Paul knows that God is a sovereign God. And that though he's a prisoner of Rome, he's a prisoner of Jesus Christ ultimately. In fact, in Acts chapter 9, when Ananias comes to Paul to tell him why he's been blinded, listen to his commission. But the Lord said to him, go, he's speaking to Ananias, go, for Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles. See, he says he's a prisoner on their behalf to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. That's his commission. Paul, I've chosen you. I've saved you to show you how much you must suffer to carry my name before the Gentiles. You see, when we think about, like, if we ask the question, is God good or not? In our flesh, we answer that question this way. Is he going to give me good circumstances, and am I not going to suffer? In the flesh, that's basically what we're all looking for. But we're fools, and God is all wise. And he has something much better than just never suffering for us. He has the riches of Christ for those who are in suffering so that when you compare them, it's, it, it's not even comparable anymore. But we have to be taken there by the truths of the gospel. And so he was a prisoner of Christ. He was a servant of Christ, literally a slave of Christ. In fact, when Paul says this, when he's standing uh, before the tribunal in Acts twenty-two seventeen, listen to what he says. He says, when I had returned to Jerusalem, I was praying in the temple I fell into a trance, and I saw him, him being Christ, saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. 
And I said, Lord, they, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was shed, I myself was standing by approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And here's the key. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So this is Paul saying this. He's recounting his testimony before the tribunal. And then here's what Acts 22 says. Up to this point, they listened to him. But once he said that, what Jesus told them, he's going to be sent far away to the Gentiles. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he shall not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, they plotted to kill him. The Jews hated Paul. He had a message that he said was from God, that there is riches from God for the Gentiles. Anyone that would speak such, they want arrested. They don't only want arrested, they want killed. He's a prisoner of Jesus Christ because he's preaching what Jesus Christ gave him to preach, and that's why he's in prison. He's not Rome's prisoner. God is the one that chose him to be an instrument to suffer for his name's sake. We can see this in Acts 21, 27 through 31. If you want to know why they were mad at him, you get a good summary here. The Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people. He's teaching against the Jews. He's trying to add Gentiles in. And against the law. Ceremonial laws no longer in place. That, that wall's been broken down. He's against the people. He's against the law, and he's against this place. He's saying they're the temple. That believers in Christ are the temple. See, it's like strike three. Paul is against them on all accounts according to their beliefs. And then they, it says in verse 25, for they had previously seen Trophimus, an Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple, which would have defiled the whole temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together, and they seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut as they were, as they were seeking to kill him. That's why they wanted to kill him. That's why Paul wanted to kill him. As a Pharisee, as a young man who had zeal beyond old men. And this Christ seemed to be destroying what they thought was good in Israel. And 
And so Paul begins here. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of the Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. So a steward is someone who takes care of something that someone else gave you. So a master gives a steward something to care for. Or if, if the steward is to make the master's money grow, then he needs to invest it, put it in good accounts so that interest will grow, right? He says, assuming you heard of God's grace that was given uh, to me, this, the stewardship of God's grace. Now, God's grace is a gift, right? So the first thing we realize in Paul's life, and, and these are actually true of us, it was for him as an apostle. But in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, we're a new creation, and we're ambassadors, we're to make God's plea through our mouth to the world. We're, we're to preach the gospel. But first, uh, stewards realize, I realize in the notes I have realizer. That's not a word. Stewards realize the grace of understanding the mystery of the truth of the gospel. What does that mean? Look at what he says in verse 3. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation. Now, the, the first thing you need to know that the word mystery is different in, than the way we use the word mystery. If something's a mystery, we don't know anything about it. But the way the Greeks use this word it, is it was something that was once hidden, but now it's been brought to light. Now it's known. Now, in a sense, it's no longer a mystery, though it used to be a mystery. And, it, and, and so he says, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. Literally, Jesus blinded him. <laughs> Paul went into a trance. Jesus talked to him. Jesus trained him. And then he says, as I've written to you briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it's now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Now, Paul in Galatians takes great strides to let him know, this is not my gospel. This is not man's gospel. No man taught me this. Christ taught me this gospel. We don't have time to go read those. But at one point in Galatians 1, he says, if I were seeking to please man, I want to be a servant of Christ. <laughs> because being a servant of Christ gets him thrown in prison all the time. But it's not his gospel. It's not his idea. God gave it to him. It was made known to him. It was revealed to the apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And when I read this, I thought, how can he say that it's a mystery? It was unknown in the past, but now they know. When 
Abraham was told that through his seed, he was going to be a blessing to the nations. If you read Isaiah, you, you read all throughout that, that through Israel and through Christ, the Christ is going to be a light to the nations, a light to the Gentiles, a blessing to all the peoples. So it's not that we didn't know anything about the Gentiles that were going to be blessed, but the part that was new is this new people that the Jews and Gentiles were going to be made into a new man, as we read in chapter 2. That was the part that was new. That was the part that they didn't fully understand. And then when they, the Christ was revealed and that he was going to be the lamb, and that was, it's not that it wasn't there in the Old Testament. After we know, we can see it. But it was brought to light in a way that it wasn't before. And then he says in verse 6, this mystery, so here's what the mystery he's talking about is, is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now there's three things there that in the Greek you can see clearly. They, they all start with the word sin. Like when you think of like, uh, synergy, two, two, two being brought together. So the Jews and the Gentiles are co-heirs, co-corporate. They're, they're members of the same body. They're co-sharers, partakers of the same promise. That's the mystery that's now been revealed to them. That's what would shock them. You know, we, we, what do we hear in the news? The world's so polarized. There's just going to be war. There's just going to, I mean, it's eventually the liberals and the conservatives are going to fight each other and kill each other. Yeah, unless Christ is formed in the heart of either one of them. And then the greatest enemies can be reconciled in Christ. You see, that's the miracle. That's what seemed impossible. That's why they want to kill Paul. No way. No way can that be. So it's a double unification in Christ. Jews and Gentiles are brought together and both of them are brought in communion with the Father through the blood of Christ. And so we see the privilege a steward has to know the truth of the gospel, to understand it. You know, I could share the gospel with one person. Do you understand it intellectually? Yeah. Do you, 
Are you amazed? No. What? How can you not be amazed that a sinner can be reconciled to a holy God? How can, how can you not be amazed? Well, there's, there's no spiritual life there. There's no understanding in that way. But Paul was given understanding in a way that he knew the truth. So my illustration at the beginning, Paul saw the light, didn't he? And then he was delivered the gospel. He was given the truth. It's God's grace for him to know the truth, to understand the mystery of the gospel. And then verse 6, it says, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So obviously the mystery and the gospel are brought together in verse 6. It's, it's, it's the fullness of understanding of what Christ has done. And then point two in your notes is stewards realize the grace of being given the ministry of announcing the gospel. So it's one thing to know it. That's a gift from God. Something has been brought to you. And now it's a gift to be able to hand it out, to be able to speak it, to be able to announce it. He says of this gospel, gospel there is a noun that is being pulled from verse 6. Through the gospel of this, I was made a minister. So that word minister, I know you think of me when you, when you read that. So where's the minister in the room? You point at me. But that's actually not good theology. That word is, is the word diakonos. It's, it's servant. Uh, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which is given to me by the working of his power to me, so the shocker is it's to Paul, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. The very name Paulos in, in, in Greek was the little one. So Paul, according to history, was little in stature. His name was the little one. And he invents a word here. He says, I was the leaster of the least, essentially. I was the very bottom. I was the smallest. I was given the privilege, the grace to be able to announce the mystery of the gospel to the Gentiles. Even though I was the very least, maybe you're in this room saying, God could never, never work through me in light of my sin, in light of... Imagine being the Apostle Paul. You just hear it when he tells his story. He says, I was there when Stephen died. I was there watching the clothes giving a thumbs up saying, kill him, so that the killer's clothes wouldn't be stolen. Now, you don't think 
Paul had to struggle with that the rest of his life, struggled to believe who he was in Christ and that he wasn't going to be defined by a sin in his struggle. Maybe you're in this room right now and you're struggling with addiction and you're saying, no way can God use me. No way can Christ help me in light of that. Well, the least of these, the Apostle Paul, the murderer, was made a minister, a servant. And then he says, to me, though I'm the very least of the saints, this grace was given. There's many places we could go. I just want to take you to one because it's so encouraging to me. 1 Timothy 1.12. Here's where the gospel just blows your mind. Here, here Paul starts out. He says, I thank him who's given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. So how were you faithful, Paul, that you were appointed to the service of Christ? Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because, so why did Paul receive mercy? Ready? I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. That's why God made him a servant and a minister. That's what it says. And then he says, And the grace of the Lord overflowed for me with the faith. That's what you need to be saved. Paul got that from God, from Christ. He overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul's love that he had was not his love. He says the love of Christ was poured into my heart. Maybe there's people in your life where you're saying, there's no way I can love them. And I say, amen, you can't. But if you know Jesus Christ and the love of Christ has been poured into your heart through the Spirit, you can love your enemies. And then he says in verse 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, but I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Are you here? Now listen to me. Are you here saying God's patience has ran out on me and he's done with me? I've had too many opportunities. I had too many chances. I've had too much truth given to me. There's no way. Well, the, God picked the worst scumbag on the earth, the Apostle Paul, so that you can know his perfect patience and that that's who God picks because it's not who's gifted in worldly terms. It's not who's great in worldly terms. He picks the things that are not to shame the things that are.
And so Paul's saying that he was given this grace, though he was the least of the saints, to preach the, to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now that word preach, where's the preacher in the room? Well, you're going to point at me, but you shouldn't. To preach the good news. That means to announce the good news. Do you realize you're the ministers? And you're the preachers? Read 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. You're the ambassadors. You're God's mouthpiece. When, when you were saved, you're, you were enlightened. You were given light. Truth was dropped on your doorstep that this lost world needs. And that was the grace of God to know it. And now you've been given the high privilege to announce it. You see, we don't argue with people. Christians aren't mainly debaters. We're announcers of what's true. We're proclaimers of the good news. We're preachers. It's, it's from the same word the gospel comes from, good news. It's the verb form, the, the, the word to preach. And Paul was given this as an apostle to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. So he's a steward in two sense. He's given the truth, and now he's given the job to announce it. To preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. Okay, here's where your mind, in my mind, just the text, that word unsearchable means impossible to be tracked out, literally, like unable to be tracked out. So the type of riches that have no end, you'll never get to heaven and get to the end of the riches of Christ towards you in Christ Jesus. It's impossible. It's infinite. Listen to the English translators struggling to find an English word for this unsearchable, inexplorable, untraceable, unfathomable, inexhaustible, illimitable, inscrutable, incalculable, inf infinite. What word are you going to pick? The word itself tells us you can't get to the end of it. Don't miss the practicality. They're sitting here. They heard all this, but they're looking at Paul's suffering. And they're asking the question, is it worth it? And what Paul has just said is this gospel that you've just been preached to you is immeasurable riches of his grace. So you can pick no suffering, get along with the culture, go with the current, Avoid people mad at me. Or you can have and hand out by God's grace the immeasurable riches of Christ. That's why Paul says this present suffering is not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed on the day of Christ Jesus. It's not worth it. It's a stupid thing to do. You don't take a thousand pound rock and put it on a scale with a feather, you already know what's going to happen. 
And that's what he's trying to help them see. He says, he's saying, do you realize? Yeah, I'm suffering, but what am I doing? What's been given to me? What am I handing out? You got to see it is what he's trying to help them see. And then he says in verse 9, so he's to preach Christ, to announce Christ. And then verse 9, it says, to bring to light. So that word isn't preach. It's a different word where uh, fotizo, it's to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So as as he announces the gospel, God uses that as the means to bring people from darkness into light. That's how he overcomes the darkness. How, how is your neighbor who is lost and broken ever going to know? By the gospel. Through the gospel, if it pleases God to bring light through that proclamation. I think this is what he has in mind. And in Ephesians 1.18, he says, having the eyes of their hearts enlightened, that you may know <coughs> what is the hope to which you are called. In Ephesians 4.17, he says, um, no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. You have the message of life. And when that message is given, and when the effectual call of God comes upon the sinner, they're given light. And Paul's been given this ministry, and you've been given this ministry. Bring to light what? For everyone, what is the plan of the mystery? This is the church. He's saying, preach Christ and preach the church. Look at the unified church in Christ, and that's what's going to make the world say Jesus was from God. The Jew and Gentile could never be reconciled unless God was doing something. To bring to light what is the mystery. That's why Jesus said they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our unity in the gospel. Of course, we're going to have opponents. Our unity is in the Word of God, in the one faith handed down to the saints. And then he says, who created all things? Now, here's why I think he says that. Seems random. Mystery for the hidden, or bring to light for everyone, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things? I think he says that because the mystery hidden, Paul has already described that as a new creation, a new man, a new society, a new people. And the one who created the world is the one who can bring about the new man, bring about the new birth, bring about the reconciliation between Jew and Gentile. All right? Now, finally, God's wisdom on display to rulers, uh, our stewards, uh, member, our remember the glory of the eternal purposes of God while suffering. 
So that's why, that's what I think he's doing in this text is he's trying to help them see that God's doing something. There's eternal glory at stake and he doesn't want them to get hung up in the present difficulties in a fallen world. Look at what he says. Verse 10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to rulers and authorities in heavenly places. So let me put this in plain English. Through the church, through this mystery that's now been revealed, the word manifold means many colored. Many colored. It's used to describe uh, flowers of all sorts of different colors, crowns, embroidered cloth, woven garments. It's like a tapestry of colors. Through the church, the, the colors of God's wis wisdom, the, the many tapestry of the wisdom of God might be made known to angels and rulers in heavenly places. Don't lose heart. God's doing something. And what God is doing, God shows us his glory by, through the universe. We can look at the universe and see his power and glory. God shows the angels his manifold wisdom and power by watching what's going on in this room right now. The, the gathered saints, so many of us don't have anything in common other than Christ. And God is a God to be worshipped. And there's beings that worship better than we do. And God is putting on a drama. And you're in it. And your part is you're a sinner saved by grace. And you've been given such grace, not only are your sins washed away, you've been given truth and you've been given a job to announce and proclaim the gospel. And the purpose of it is so the angels go. The many-colored tapestry of the wisdom of God. Listen, Christian, you and I really are not at the center of the universe. Even God saving you is God doing something to cause heavenly beings worship. You realize that? See, we like to put ourselves in the center of all things, and yet God is putting his grace on display. And then in verse 11, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So this was God's purpose. This was God's plan. It was his eternal plan. Remember, your election started before the foundation of the world. And then in verse 12, he says, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Would you ever tell Paul, check out of your ministry? <laughs> All that was true for him, the wonderful privilege to be given this knowledge and to proclaim it and then say, Paul, you're going to die young if you keep talking like that. 
See, Paul's saying that's craziness. Don't lose heart, Christian. This is momentary suffering that'll turn into eternal glory beyond what we can imagine. And so I want to leave you with 2 Corinthians 5, which I've referenced. Listen to this. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. For if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. There it is, right? He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through him, or who through Christ, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So he saved you. He reconciled us, Jew and Gentile, to God through Christ, and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. It's been left on your doorstep, Christian. You've been left a message. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. See, we announce the king. We announce the good news. God making his appeal through us See, an ambassador doesn't speak on his own behalf. He speaks on behalf of the king. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so I stand here today, room this big, not everyone knows Christ. And so I implore you, I tell you, that though you're a sinner and deserve eternal hell under the wrath of God for your sins because you deserve eternal punishment because you sinned against the eternal God. But the eternal Son of God took on flesh, became man, died in the place of the worst of sinners so that they can be given the gift of Christ's perfect righteousness. Anyone who trusts in Christ Christ takes your sin, you get his righteousness. So that now you're reconciled to God. And if you'll admit you're a sinner, you'll turn from your sin and say, there is no life in my sin. There's only life in Christ. And believe in him by faith. Not only will you be saved, but you'll be given that message you now know is dropped on your doorstep. And now you become one that pronounces light in the midst of a dark world. 